Alexander Munker is a book collector. Specifically, I guess your major interest is Canadian poetry. Especially of the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And why is that? Well, it was a high point of Canadian modernist writing where we had really exciting people like Louis Duddick and Raymond Souster and P.K. Page and Irving Layton uh, writing some of Canada's best poetry and Souster and Dudek of course started Contact Press you know and and nurtured writers like Margaret Atwood and Leonard Cohen and uh, Al Purdy and uh, and really started this second wave of uh, of Canadian modernist writing some people might satisfy themselves with just going to the library or getting paperbacked editions and reading and getting to know these poets <laughs> because they were important but you're you're different i love having the I guess if it were called an artifact, that wouldn't be inappropriate. Having the books that were printed um, at the time, that were part of the, you know, literary vernacular, as it were, of that of that time, mm. you know, to have pamphlets and to have small magazines, books. I mean, that's kind of exciting to have, and and I do enjoy reading contemporary anthologies, and uh, certainly don't turn my nose up at paperbacks and um, and and things that are more commonly found. And in, in fact, it's really need to find stuff that's uh, that's reprinting the older um, editions because often they have introductions and annotations that just enhance the pleasure of reading the poets. But why is there this urge to have the artifact? Well, I guess if I were to go back to my childhood, as people who talk about their love of books often do, my experience as a child, it was different than many people who who collect and love books, and that is that I was not really surrounded by books, and I was not really read to as a child. And uh, I, in fact, learned how to read and write in my teens with some level of competency. Uh, But my reading came quite late, and my enjoyment of of books came quite late in my teens. And uh, once I realized that this was something that I could actually do and enjoy and make sense of, um, it was tremendously exciting. And the thing that drew me to poetry, especially modern poetry, is that it at times, you know, just ignored the rules of, of language. You know, you have poets like Bill Bissett and B.P. Nickel that would intentionally misspell words, and that was okay. Or you could have lines of poetry that didn't rhyme and that looked like apples. And, uh, you know, it, it was very welcoming to somebody who was just learning how to read to see people who, in essence, um, saw the printed word in a similar way that I did. Which is what? Which is just approaching it with apprehension, but with a sense of naivety, perhaps. And there's there's a certain amount of naivety in the early concrete poet and sound poets of of the 60s. So you sort of had an affinity for these people, and and they... Yeah. This what? practice of playing around with rules Mm -hmm. and and experimenting with words hit a chord in you. Absolutely, and and it was fun. I mean, that's the most important thing. Gave you pleasure? Yeah, it gave me a great deal of pleasure to read these people. Going from that to wanting to possess these works... Now, I can see with concrete poetry, the art of the word on the page is... Not having a great deal growing up and then being in a situation where, you know, I'd left home and I was uh, struggling. But books were always attainable uh, because they were inexpensively priced, for one. Largely because you could go to thrift stores? I didn't really go to thrift stores or the estate sales and yard sales that I do now then because I wasn't really aware of that whole part of the book acquisition culture, but I was treated with tremendous kindness by the 
used in antiquarian booksellers um, in Ottawa who uh, basically said, you know what, I found this, it's not in perfect condition, but I know you'll really enjoy it and priced it accordingly. And, you know, people like Morty from Benjamin Books and Patrick McGarren and John and his wife from Book Bazaar and the list goes on. But these were all people who, you know, at a time in my life that things were quite difficult were tremendously welcoming and uh, and showed me a great deal of really interesting books that I wouldn't have been aware of. And, I, and I've never been to university. I mean, I've taken a couple of correspondence courses, but you know, I went to community college and all the while. And, you know, and while working for the last 20 or so years with people who have physical and mental disabilities, I've always seen my work as, as, a, as a means to buy books and, of course, support myself and support my son and uh, family. But uh, the most important thing outside of the obvious necessities of life was to assemble a collection that, that would sustain me and give me a great deal of pleasure. I mean, I can see that. We're sitting in uh, your study here, that's, and we're surrounded by uh, bookshelves filled with narrow spines, <laughs> which is typical of poetry books, so there's yeah. a lot of them here. So you're suggesting then that this desire to, to actually acquire mm -hmm. and possess might be connected to a, a desire to be surrounded by and sustained by voices that interested you. Yeah, voices that interested me and also voices that I, I, I could escape into because uh, reading, of course, is a very escapist pursuit. I mean, when we sit down and we engage with a writer who's composed a novel or a poem, we just find ourselves, you know, immersed in that. And uh, and we lose track of time. We lose track of, you know, well, I'm hungry or I need to go to the bathroom. I can wait. I'm in the middle of something. And um, I really like that sense. So, yeah, there certainly is that aspect of, of why it is I uh, surround myself with books and bookcases. And there's also an injury that I sustained as a child when uh, my parents remember it, but I, I don't. And I think that may speak to the severity of the injury. Um, when I was a three or four year old, my brother and I were playing in Holland, which is where I grew up, and my parents did have a bookcase, and uh, somehow I found myself climbing up this bookcase, and then, then they proceeded to topple over, and, uh, and I was completely buried in books. So I think that that has somehow made some sort of a, of a lasting physical impression. I mean, I say that, of course, humorously, but there is something about the you way. So you weren't hurt. No, you well, hurt? I, not that I. No, no, no. You probably no, enjoyed no, no. all this. Uh, I, it was action. Fun, yeah. Yeah, so the action it was fun. No, I say that jokingly. I do like the weight. I do like the the certainty of of possessions, mm -hmm. of books. <laughs> my poor wife, who's very kind, certainly helped me move my books and several. So you know about the weight of them. Then. Well, yeah. When you move several hundred boxes, you, you you know you question, well, why is it that I have this? And then when you start unpacking and you realize it's like Christmas, and then you you're like, I forgot about this, and you stop your unpacking and you open the book and you start reading, you know, the Cinnamon Peeler by Michael and Dachi, and you're like, oh, I love this poem. And then you continue on and you're like giggling because you get to the part where you have the elimination dances and the you know the you, you imagine and then you realize oh man i've got another 250 or 300 boxes to unpack or to move i shouldn't be reading this i've moved my collection from halifax to new jersey and new jersey to ottawa and then ottawa several times and uh, if anything after every move there's always more to move as opposed to what perhaps a, a sane or a more 
Um, I don't know. People are people are more wanting. Less so, uh, inquisitive. Yeah, yeah, and I do like acquiring. I, I yeah. love I love stuff. I love being surrounded by paper and reading it. And well, the other you know, thing too, just, I assume, is that you get a thrill finding an important book for for a dollar or fifty cents. Yeah, I, I really enjoy. It. Though I though I have a, a great affinity for the used shops and the antiquarian booksellers, yeah. and I support them and I shop with them and. Uh, and and I'm I'm very fortunate that that some of them keep their eyes out for me for things that I truly enjoy like the poetry and uh, but but there is a pleasure in going to an estate sale and um, buying chunks of a person's library or or garage sales. I mean I don't own a car so I go biking around the neighborhoods with my panniers and uh, and fill them full of books and uh, sometimes I get really lucky and I find find stuff that I normally wouldn't be able to afford because um, they're, they're rare or unusual. So, I mean, that's the pleasure with, uh, with book scouting. And um, one of the ways that I've managed to build up this collection that I have is during what I call the golden age of book scouting. You know, about 10 or 15 years ago, just as Abe was getting big, mm-hmm. now Abe unfortunately has killed a lot of things in the book industry, like the, the $20, $25 book is, is so hard now for book dealers to sell because somebody can go online and say, well, I can get it for five bucks, you know, and uh, it's become really difficult, as David Mason says in his extraordinary book, uh, The Pope's Bookbinder, to have a stock of contemporary books that are, you know, between five and 15 and 20 dollars. Booksellers still do it, you know, really good quality books, you know, nice scholarly stuff. People are selling them for like a dollar fifty or two dollars in some huge Texas warehouse. And uh, so, of course, that's become really, you know, a downside to the business and and has led, unfortunately and tragically, to a lot of shops closing down. And, of course, then you've seen the rise of people who say, well, I can sell books. And then they open up their little shop online and then they, you know, operate out of their basement. And um, I don't know, my my understanding is Abe prices have become more and more expensive for book dealers. So I'm, I'm not sure how long that's going to be. Yeah, the percentage that they charge. Yeah, yeah. I'm not yeah. sure how that's going to, how long that's going to last. And, and I foresee actually, uh, uh, you know, in the next few years that when we're out um, scouting about for books, we're going to start seeing people's collections that they've acquired, you know, 10, 15 years ago thinking, well, I can sell this online. And then they realize how difficult it is to sell a book mm-hmm. and how much skill and how much knowledge is required and why people like Patrick McGarren and David Mason have the knowledge base that they do and how they can successfully have a business and sell the books that they do because it requires a tremendous amount of knowledge. And, and I'm sure that, uh, Nigel, you've heard this as well from friends. They look at the quantity of books that, that we have and they say, wow, you should start a bookstore. Well, that's the furthest thing from my mind because I really don't want to get rid of the books that I truly love. But also, more importantly, I don't have the knowledge and the wherewithal that these dealers who have been in the business for 20, 30 years, like John Wyatt and you know, even Bill Cameron, who has this marvelous shop um, in the Ottawa Antique Market, you know, these are people who truly specialize in, in books and, and have made it their life. And they're, you know, I wouldn't pretend to be so so bold mm-hmm. as to be able to say that I could open up a successful shop. If we could get back to, um, you kind of, realized at a fairly early age yeah. that, that there was a love of books. Absolutely. At what age did you start acquiring books? I was about 20, 21. I lived in a rooming house and it was close to the Pretoria Bridge where Clive Barclay, I believe was his name, was had Barclay's books. And he was tremendously welcoming and he's since passed away. Mm. And I'd never seen some of the types of editions that uh, 
that uh, they had. And then uh, Morty from Benjamin Books was also tremendously welcoming and uh, and showed me things that were that were attainable. To be able to know that I could slide this book in my pocket and not have it, not have to worry about giving it back. I've never used a library, to be honest with you. I, I, <laughs> I, I the whole idea of, of of getting a book and then having to give it back. And I don't borrow books either because because uh, I know that uh, I would form a bond with the book and uh, and yeah I could just couldn't account. I just couldn't do that to my friends or acquaintances who have been kind enough to offer but what books in particular uh, uh, would have appealed to you well at first it was uh, I was I was in awe of leather bound books they they just seemed so there was just something magical about them and I and I remember buying two books by the Irish author Charles Lever and uh, they were illustrated by George Cruikshank who also of course um, and Hablo Knight Brown, who who was Fizz, who also illustrated Charles Dickens, and uh, you know the engravings really appealed to me. They were just rollicking, fun books about drinking and being in the military, and you know, and that led me to further explorations in Victorian writing. It's funny that Charles Lever was my was my introduction to Victorian writing because, sadly, although he was a contemporary and friend of Dickens, he's he's lesser read now than. And perhaps he should be. I mean, sadly, in one sense, but if he's not very well known, that's, that means that the price is is the is price right. is right, and there's so much out there. I absolutely adore the work of Walter Scott, and I'm I'm so blessed that I've been able to find fun stuff dealing with the life of Walter Scott and and his books. In Halifax, there is a wonderful bookstore called Schooner Books, owned by John Townsend. And I, I lived close to the shop when I lived in Halifax, and I fell in love with a set of Walter Scott novels. And they were they had a they had the very thin leather binding that was common with the uh, with the subscription sets of the Victorian or late Victorian era. Well, these and, are the ones that uh, had his own name on because he. He was involved in the publishing of them. No, this would have been after his death. Uh, okay. um, you know, in nineteen in the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties. So they were they weren't spectacular books, and but but you know, I there was was like you know sixteen years ago, seventeen years ago, and I was uh, I was I just was so taken by them, and to my delight, many of the books uh, had uncut pages. So I would we'd be reading this book for the very first time, yeah, and and that's a lot. That was a lot of fun to just you know cut through Walter Scott. The one thing that I've learned is that if you want to really get to know books, if you want to really learn. You know, go into the shops and speak to the dealers because they've immersed themselves in the culture of books and they've made it their business and they are your guide. They will take you and they will show you things and, uh, and, and make your mouth drop. So what did you learn early on? I learned not to turn my nose up at, at things because of condition. And also I learned that uh, the most important thing when it comes to purchasing books is to enjoy what it is that I'm purchasing. I learned that there were things that I could find for very cheap and trade for book credit and get books that I really, really like. Yes. At, at that time, when uh, when the internet was just taking off with books, you know, and there weren't a lot of dealers doing it, mm. Um, so there weren't there weren't the forty to one hundred and forty copies that you see now online of each book, yeah, of each book. So you know you can go out as a scout and spend twenty thirty bucks and get like a couple hundred dollars in book credit and buy stuff that you really really wanted. You That's know, exciting. That was fun. It was a lot of fun. And that it, was in Halifax. It was in I did it in Halifax. Um, 
And I also had the pleasure of working for John Dowell, in it, and he has a marvelous bookstore, which has since moved to Dartmouth, and it's well worth checking out. You know, and he taught me a great deal. He taught me that um, the more you know about um, what you're interested in, the more likely uh, you'll find what it is you're looking for, which sounds, sounds silly, but when it comes to poetry, there is so much to know, and there are so many small presses, and that there are so many authors who may not be read now, but were very important 15, 20 years ago, and also supported other authors that, that now are, are greatly revered. Case in point, Louis Duddick, who had a small press named Delta, was very important with Contact Press, sadly at the moment isn't, isn't read as much as I feel he should be. But, you know, he was a tremendous support to writers like Leonard Cohen. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he was uh, a real facilitator. He was he? a tremendous facilitator. And same with A.M. Klein. Um, so, yeah, I learned from the dealers to learn and teach myself as much as possible about about my fields of interest. And uh, one of the ways I did that was by acquiring um, catalogs that dealers had put out in the past. And I have a collection of, uh, of catalogs uh, from different um, shops that I've written to to get their catalogs. Uh, I also have a William Hoffer catalog collection. He was a... Uh, famous Vancouver a bookseller who, who did some publishing too. Who right? did? He did some publishing with John Metcalf. He did some projects called Tanks, and he wrote essays as well, which are featured in some of Metcalf's books. And he unfortunately had had some real difficulties in terms of how he related with others. And and again, I encourage people to read the Pope's book binder by David Mason, and uh, he has a chapter on Hoffer, which is quite illuminating, and mm. uh, I learned a lot. That's another thing, too, is to, you know, to read books on books, you know, read publishing histories, read uh, magazine articles, and, and try to get as much of a sense of what was going on at, you know, the, time, at yeah. the time. In a way, you're sort of recreating that time by having all of these artifacts from those years, and, and it's yeah. a wonderful way to to get back into a, a quite an exciting period in Canadian publishing. Oh sure, sure. I mean, I get really excited when I when I come across and write. You know, lately one of my passions is collecting Ryerson Press stuff from the '40s and '50s, and when you find it in nice condition, and uh, it's really exciting. I remember um, finding. Uh, Raymond Souster's Go to Sleep World, and uh, and the pages hadn't even been cut, and uh, and I sat down and I read that book, and I you know I was the first to cut its pages, and that's you know although some dealer some uh, collectors might might be appalled to hear that I would actually you know do that because I think for some people the value of a book is increased by the fact that it hasn't been read, which to me is a rather for me as a, as a reader. And lover and collector of books seems a little bit silly because you know and you know ultimately my books are are here to be read and I I don't have anything that I I wouldn't read because I'm afraid of its condition deteriorating. I have had tremendously fragile things from you know from the you know 17th and 18th century, but I've had pleasure in bringing those to dealers and saying you know give me some credit for these because yeah. I mean because you know you still find remarkable stuff at estate sales, at yard sales, at school book sales. I, I encourage any of your listeners that if they want to build a library and do it in, you know, in an inexpensive way, now is the time because a lot of dealers are passing up on beautiful contemporary stuff. And if you're looking for older stuff, it's out there. You just have to be patient and, uh, and go out and uh, you know, take your car or your bike out on a Saturday morning and go to the yard sales and the garage sales. And, and uh, you know, especially in Ottawa where we have a lot of people who had very exciting careers and you know, you can find the stuff that they're getting rid of because they're either moving or they've passed away and their families are 
you know, downsizing. I think. So you, what you're saying is, although there was a golden age, what you're calling yeah, of book scouting, where you can actually make return, money, return, you can actually yeah. make money. That's get, not quite the case now. It's not but... the case now with the twenty to forty dollar books as, as they would be priced online, because there's so many of them. But if you find really unusual stuff, there's always a market for it, and. Um, I always encourage people to go to a dealer that's affiliated with the Antiquarian Book Association of Canada or is familiar or, or because they you know when it comes to the more rare and esoteric stuff they have the knowledge to price it and they price it fairly and as I mentioned to you earlier in our conversation in my dealings with dealers I, n I never haggle about prices because when you have a really good relationship established with a dealer as a book scout and the dealer knows that you are also a book lover and that you have fields of interest that I mean there are books that I found scouting around that I keep because you know they're just so wonderful that like you, what? Know, you know early Ryerson press stuff um, you know, uh, signed Ondaatje and Leighton stuff, and uh, you know, you, I found a Leonard Cohen spice box of Earth for a dollar fifty that was that was signed. Cohen right now is very very popular, and uh, and he's one of the contemporary writers that dealers will pay a fair amount of money for. But I I, I like it. It's something I want to keep. And you know, when you look around and you're patient, and you, you can find things like that. Yeah, you know? this, this is an amazing book. It really is. Yeah. I'm, I'm very interested in Frank, Frank Newfield. Yeah, I know. I know you are. Uh, what's interesting is how prominently his name is, is displayed on the title mm -hmm. page, which is terrific. I'm speaking with Alexander Munker, a, a collector of, uh, among other things, Canadian poetry based in Ottawa, Canada. So you can't necessarily sort of flip these books as no. easily as you used to. You, I mean, if you see something that's terrific, yeah. do you go online yourself and try and sell it, or do you no. get into that? No, no. never. No, because um, selling online takes an enormous amount of time, first of all. And I'm and I'm also a lazy person. I mean, although I'm very active in looking for things, to actually sell something, to list it properly, to package it, to send it off, and then have the person say, oh, well, this isn't quite what I'm looking for, or it got lost in the mail, or I just don't want to have that kind of hassle. And I think that that would really take away from the pleasure of, of books for me to start looking at things in terms of monetary values. Yeah, it's just, I just don't want to think about my books in that way and, uh, and try to sell them, which yeah. is why, again, you know, I never really haggled with the dealers that I've sold to or traded with. You I've always made a profit anyways. Yes, you know? that's a way of establishing a very good relationship. Dealers remember that, and I and I so encourage your listeners that if they live near bookstores that are, uh, you know, run by people who have a have a lot of books coming in to, you know, have a good relationship with them, ask lots of questions and say, you know, this is what I'm interested in. When these things come in, can you hold them aside for me? You know, leave want lists. And I think one of the most important things to realize, too, is that most book dealers who are credible price things fairly. Mm -hmm. And I also take into account, too, that the book dealer has tremendous overhead, and they also have staff. You know, these book dealers know that if they develop relationships with their customers, these are relationships that are typically very long-lasting. Yeah. And the the books that I may not have been able to afford when I was in my early 20s and, and frankly impoverished, I can now, you know, save up for and, and, and acquire. So, you know, yeah. the cliche of the snobby bookstore owner 
yeah, it just doesn't really hold water for me. I mean, I just see very little. I think that, that definitely, though, there is that. You can't get away from it. And there are root dealers. We've all, we've all, as book lovers, we've all walked into a shop and been condescended towards yeah. or have been spoken to in a rude and crass way. And, and yes, that does this does go on. But thankfully, these dealers, especially now in this economic climate, they don't make it. I mean, they're yeah. just, people don't have patience for them. And I will not shop at a place that... Uh, there's that attitude, yeah. Yeah, I know. But on the other hand, as you say, if you come in with a genuine interest yeah. and enthusiasm, yeah. then more than likely you're going to get a, a, a decent reception. Absolutely. Let's just get into some of the books themselves then. Sure. Uh, you know, the collection is broad and deep. First of all, when you go after Canadian uh -huh. poetry, what are you thinking? I want to have every book of poetry that's ever been written by a Canadian in that time frame? As much as possible, yeah. I mean, if it's if it's out there and it's available to me at a, at a price that I can afford, the, the, the special stuff, the stuff that I'm really looking for, that I'm excited by, uh, I save up for and I buy through dealers. Well, and what's that? Contact press stuff. I bought a wonderful book of E.J. Pratt from uh, Benjamin Books a little while ago, and an incredible collection of concrete poetry by B.P. Nickel, The Cosmic Chef, which was published in the early 70s in Oberon, which is a beautiful box that, that contains these loose leaves. I got this from uh, Patrick McGarren. He knew that I collected this type of poetry. And again, having the relationship with the book dealer, yeah. you know, I walked into his shop, and, uh, and he said, Hey, Alexander, I've got something to show you. What do you think of this? And he offered me a price for it, and I said, of course, it's beautiful. I'd, I'd love to have that. And uh, and again, having that relationship is, is where you know where it's really wonderful. Yeah, because um, in effect, you've got a bunch of different eyes on the lookout for absolutely. you. Absolutely, and, yeah. and, and I too have eyes on the lookout for the people that, uh, I mean, Patrick is interested in, in Irish and, uh, and, and does it very, very well, Irish books. And, uh, you know, on occasion when I found things, I have a great deal of pleasure in walking in and saying, look, this is what I found. And, uh, yeah. you know, and yeah. uh, so that kind of reciprocal relationship is, a, is, is not only pleasant and fun and, and nurturing in many ways, it's also mutually beneficial and sure. beneficial as well. Yeah. Um, so, so let's get back to the, the to actual the, to books. The, yeah, to yeah. The, like again. So, the, yeah, as much Canadian poetry as I can possibly collect is, is what I'm what I'm. Doing. What you're after, yeah, okay. because I want to read as widely in Canadian poetry as possible because uh, it is such an exciting part of our of our literary heritage, and there was so much great stuff that happened in Canadian poetry from the early poets like G.D. Roberts and Bliss Carmen, and uh, all the way to E.J. Pratt, and then the modernist poetry with uh, Leighton and uh, you know, as mentioned, Dudek and Souster and uh, A.M. Klein and uh, you know P.K. Page. These are all. I mean, these are really, really important names in Canadian writing, and 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 have written wonderful stuff, and yeah. and going down to Andachi, and uh, and then to the present day when we have some really exciting stuff going on too. And uh, I love collecting small press stuff, and there's a small press in Ottawa that I'm really actively collecting called Department Nine Press, and they put out poetry in editions of um, uh, fifty, and then sometimes they reprint them, and. Uh, and, and I get as much of their stuff as possible because the, you know the editor of the press, Carmen, um, Cameron, Cameron, yeah, Cameron Anstey, he's uh, he's got a really great eye inter and and a great editing eye as well too. And there's a poet by the name of Rachel Simpson who's come out with 
great stuff that has been featured by AS Press. And, uh, and then more established poets are, are featured as well, like Phil Hall. And uh, if you keep your eyes open and you look around and you scrabble around and uh, you find cool stuff. So to answer your question as much as possible and um, so that I could read as widely as possible Canadian poetry. So within that fairly wide swath, and again, and we're speaking, let's say, to someone who may share your, your yeah. passion and interest in this field, but they may not want to be as, as comprehensive as sure. you are. I'm talking here about the actual physical book rather yeah. than the content. What books really do you love because of how they look? Boy, Oberon Press has made beautiful hardcover books. They're hard to find because they're in editions of uh, sometimes uh, 200, 300, 400. Um, Oberon was famous because they didn't have a return policy, I think, for my, most of their books. And so bookshops were reluctant to carry them because they knew that if they couldn't sell them, they couldn't br- send them back to the publisher. So they actually owned them. Now, that's based in Ottawa. In too, Ottawa, yeah. So yeah. Ottawa, the Oberon Press is stuff. And of course, John Metcalf has been a part of, uh, I believe, was a part of Oberon Press, too. Uh, and it edited some of their books. Gasparo Press is one of the most important things happening today in Canadian book publishing. They make physically beautiful books, and you you do a marvelous interview with uh, one of their bookmakers and, uh, and Andrew and Steves. Andrew yeah. Steves, and we have so many exploding books, uh, books published by McClelland and Stewart that are are held together by this lick of glue, paper boards, and you read them twice and they fall to pieces. So I'm really after books that are well made, beautifully made. Porcupine Quill, they make such gorgeous books, sewn signatures beautiful quality paper and the contents are amazing i mean they publish pk page and they mm. publish so many other great canadian writers that uh, you know what do you love the most what do i love the most lately it's gaspero gaspero yeah. i absolutely adore and biblio oasis i just uh, they've got some beautiful books yeah, but they're yeah. also pretty functional too absolutely functional but absolutely beautiful so biblio oasis absolutely and this is one of the things i encourage um, collectors to do yeah, get in touch with the press themselves and say, listen, I want, you know, want 30, 40 books of your back catalog and, uh, and say, you know, I, I love your press. And um, they're so happy to, to, to sell them, of course, but to really get to know a press and to really collect it actively, which I do with Biblio Oasis and Gaspero and Porcupine's Quill, because not only are they inexpensive, so they're attainable. And of course, they do put out some beautiful editions that, that are more expensive for the collector. But, you know, the fact that these books are made in editions of between five and 800 often makes them quite rare and scarce. And to think that many of them are, are sent to institutions and libraries and then they become library copies and they're, and they're defaced in the way that uh, books have to be defaced if they're going to be part of a, of a lending library. You know, find out what the presses are putting out. Find out what you're interested in. You know, for me, it's poetry, of course. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I order as much poetry through Gasparos. You know, I'm going to be ordering as much, you know, and Biblioasis as I can. And, uh, uh, plus, you're guaranteed that they're going to be in perfect condition. Too, yeah. yeah. And that's enjoyable. And, and the first edition. And yeah. the first edition, yeah. often. And, and they're wonderful to read. And even when I come across, especially with Gaspero, Especially when I come across um, books that I already have, I, I, I get them anyways. And this is something that I really recommend collectors 
to do is that if you have, um, for example, Johannes Gipsrud, wonderful poet, but also wrote The Sentimentalist, which uh, was a very important book for many reasons, and a very scarce book if you're looking for it as a first edition. She also published poetry, which is a little bit more attainable and, and earlier, and, or, or were for a while, and I mean, I have multiple copies of those just because I know that I'm going to meet people who who really love these things, and, and we can trade. And that's one of the great pleasures of uh, book collecting, too, is trading with people that uh, that acquire as well. One of the things I recommend, too, to collectors is get out to the book fairs. Ottawa Writers' Festival is an incredible festival, and the uh, Verse Fest is a wonderful poetry festival that happens in Ottawa. Find out about the local fairs and get your stuff signed. Rock stars, they really often don't have time for their fans. Writers make time for their fans. They answer emails. They're excited about other people being excited, especially with poetry. Uh, they're excited about other people reading their work. Jay Miller, who who publishes Book Thug, you know, you write to him and you say, "Listen, I really, re- you know, enjoyed this book. Can I send you a copy? And can you sign it for me?" And they're they're delighted to do that. I've done that with a number of authors. Nelson Ball, author of uh, poetry in the seventies, very important and a publisher and a very important publisher. Yeah. Weedflower Press, which is another press that I collect, very very important. I mean, you you get to know these people and you say, "Well, listen, I'm gonna." Is it okay if I send you a book and you sign it for me? So you you put the return package envelope in with the book and, and you mail it off, and then two weeks later it's like Christmas. You open it up and you have like a you have a signed edition. And and, and poets especially love to sign their books, and, uh, and so I I and, and novelists as well. But poets really enjoy knowing that people give a damn about their work. Well, it's just so great to be sitting here next to all of these volumes just all of them have an, an interesting story uh, within their pages but also uh, around them yeah there's something ephemeral about about certain books too is that they many books get destroyed as you know in our culture and uh, mm-hmm. get lost i was uh, i have no problem going through uh, other people's garbage, as it were, and I'm, I'm not talking about opening up bags all the time and looking in. But um, two nights ago, I was walking down the street, walking my dog, and there were there were ten or fifteen boxes of books, and clearly they were boxes of books because they they were open, as if to say, "Take me before you know the the garbage men come and get them." And uh, so, you know, I I got actually you know two boxes of what I consider to be good books that I can bring to a dealer and say, hey, will you give me book credit for these? And they'll be happy to do that because they're books that uh, I know students are after. And living in a student area, you know, you, you come across stuff. This is like my second or third time where I found boxes of books just on the curb. found a copy of the Quran, which I have a couple of copies of already because I do like to read theological and, and, and works by different different faiths. And uh, I remember Salman Rushdie in Imaginary Homelands, there's an essay about loving books, about how, and, and there's a part of an essay where where it talks about when you drop books in a Muslim family that has a has a reverence for books, you pick up the book quickly and you, you kiss the book and you, you know, you, you basically apologize for it, or you give it a kiss and you show it some reverence. So I found a copy of the Quran in a really nice annotated copy, actually, which I'm going to keep and uh, and eventually you know, read through or flip through. Um, and, you know, I remember picking it up out of the trash, and of course I had to, I had to kiss it. <laughs> you know, I have friends and I have people who I know who are Muslim, and I know that it's not only the faith, it's also the actual book. 
you see something that's about to be discarded and you save it and well, you treat it with reverence. Uh, and there's nothing uh, to be ashamed of about Absolutely picking not. the garbage. I know Stephen Temple told me yeah. a story of a book scout that he knew who did the same thing in Toronto and yeah. came up with a signed Oscar Wilde. Yeah. Everywhere and anywhere, mm -hmm. you know. Absolutely. Don't fail to check it out. The stinkiest thrift shops, I found some beautiful books. You have a lovely story, to, or at least a really uh, great advice about shopping online. Maybe you could tell me the oh, story behind yeah. that. Yeah, um, when you shop online and you buy books, I recommend to people to misspell the names of authors and book titles because often when people are entering titles of books, they can. Uh, and I'm reaching for a, a, an example. Uh, Unit of Five was a very, very important collection of Canadian poems that came out in, in 1944 with Ryerson Press. And it's, it's a book that normally I wouldn't be able to afford. It's quite expensive, and there are very few out there online. But instead of five spelled F-I-V-E, I put in the number five, and there was only one listing where, of course, all of the dealers who know the book listed it as, you know, unit of five with, you know, the word five as opposed to the number five. And there was one listing, and it was for a ridiculously low price. And it had a jacket, and it was beautiful, and it was crisp. And I thought, my goodness, that's, that's you know, one of those too-good-to-be-true things. So I was expecting it, oh, it's going to come in, it's going to be flawed, it's going to, you know, have underlining or something. And yeah, it was, you know, because of the paper, of course, there's, you know, there's some darkening because of the, you know, the age. And the the age. And of course, this was wartime. Wartime. Yeah. So, you know, there were paper things happening, paper uh, conservation drives happening. And That's first, a great tip. I think yeah, I this, is, this is the first appearance of Louis Duddick, very important Canadian poet. And uh, yeah. P.K. Page, Raymond Souster, you know, critical critical writing in canadian poetry and so yeah if you're looking around for books online misspell things if people, especially if it's uh, not a canadian uh, dealer they may not be familiar absolutely with, this was an american dealer in yeah. seattle someone who's young who loves if not canadian poetry then absolutely. australian poetry yeah australia. they could be anywhere in the world and if, love their country's poetry so uh, what's your best bit of advice for young collectors who are just starting out don't be intimidated by dealers and collectors who have had more experience or have more money than you because uh, many of them were once in your place as well. And if you ask them, often they're very, very willing to share their knowledge. So that's definitely... And don't be shy to scrounge around in places that, that are unexpected, like the thrift stores, the garage sales, the art sales, the estate sales, the church sales. Get out there and get them. Terrific. What a pleasure to have met you, and uh, thank you so much for joining me at my home. It's been a real pleasure. I've been speaking with Alexander Munker, who is uh, your bibliophile for sure. Would yeah. you call yourself a bibliomaniac? No, no, because a bibliomaniac is somebody who is uh, who actually has that psychiatric disorder that prevents them from making reasonable decisions based on their acquisition of books. For example, a bibliomaniac wouldn't have done what I did when my son was three and his cat was injured and needed surgery and I was we, we had very little money. I, I sold boxes of books so that my son's cat could have the surgery that he needed to, uh, you know, to extend his life. You know, books can be replaced. Books are important. We love books, but they're only books. You know, so, so there's yeah. some things. So there's some very things. Few, very, <laughs> very few, few things. of course, of course. But yeah, I guess I'm a bibliophile, book lover. Bibliophage, occasional book eater. <laughs> Thanks again for your time. Pleasure.